And this is the Green Majority CIUT 89.5 FM, Canada's oldest environmental radio show, your community station, your podcast application, Harbinger Media Network. I am David Hostetter. I'm Stephen Hostetter. And I'm Lauren Latour. And I'll tell you what, listeners, I feel like the oldest environmental news radio show and podcast. That didn't roll. Lauren is the oldest known living environmental podcaster. I like the vocal fry of a 30-year-old, but like, joke's on you guys. I'm like 87. And been podcasting this entire time. And Stefan will be interviewing Professor Stephen Sharper again this week, also talking about democracy. This time they'll be discussing the origins of American democracy. Is that correct? Well, so first, the, first the origins of democracy itself. Well, everybody knows the origins of democracy itself. Well, this is exactly Socrates shat into a pan, threw it at Plato. American democracy. I thought we were a news show. Hey, not a fantasy podcast. This is a fake news show. But yes, no, yeah. This is what people, you know, people often attribute attribute democracy to the Greeks. And it turns out it's more complicated. Than Don't that. tell me it's the Arabs. I mean, Don't tell democracy me. existed everywhere, uh, in different fashions. I guess he is a U of T professor, so every U of T professor, I think, has to contractually say something about the origin of democracy at some point <laughs> in their career. Was Jordan Peterson U of T? Yes. Yeah. Is he still there? No. Lauren, you wanted to discuss some sort of LNG thing. I don't. Recall. Well, actually, this was a request from a listener. A listener requested that we talk about this. Yeah. And so we're going to do it now, and then we'll dive in with it again, actually, in a couple of weeks with um, with Mitchell Beer to sort of get to, uh, get his perspective on it. But yeah, we had, got an email from a listener asking us to cover this story. So Lauren, take it away. So last Friday, it was announced um, by the biden dash Harris, Biden, Biden hyphen Harris, Biden dash Harris, doesn't matter. Biden Harris administration. Um, they're putting a temporary pause on pending, pending approvals of liquefied natural gas exports in the States. Um, so what that means is that over the next, I'm, I'm not too sure what the exact timeline is, several months, um, they're going to be reevaluating what their current um, sort of like standards are for authorization of export terminals of, of liquefied natural gas or LNG um, within the United States. Obviously, uh, like that headline sort of says, uh, it is on pending approvals only. So that doesn't affect any projects that have already been approved um, or are already in operation. But it does mean that, for instance, um, a few weeks ago, we were talking about a big um, potential natural gas terminal or LNG terminal um, that's going to be built in the Gulf. I believe, Can sorry, can you Google it for me, guys? Is it CP2 or CB2? There's a company that makes chairs that has a very similar name. Anyway, so something like that, a big project that people were really freaked out about because it's a pretty big carbon bomb and it's in an already vulnerable ecosystem in the Gulf of Mexico, for instance, that is a project that might that may potentially no longer go forward if the new regulations that are being sort of like explored and proposed were to come into effect after after sort of this reevaluation is done. Obviously, industry is freaking out. Industry in the states were like, "This sounds the death knell for 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 gas in in the United States." And um, the only article that I've seen so far from Canadian publications is one from the CBC, and the headline is so silly. It's Canadian energy producers dismayed by Biden's move to pause U.S. LNG approval. So so industry is freaking out. Industry is being huge babies about it, but. Um, 
generally speaking, I think the 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 hope is that this is going to be pretty positive because um, our understanding is that yes, this is a temporary pause pending these these further regulations in this analysis, but. Our understanding is that Biden is doing this in a really intense effort or really, um, I guess not intense, but in um, in a in a really solid effort to appeal to a younger generation and to appeal to those um, millennials. And I, I guess even in Gen Z um, ahead of the November election in the states. Um, so so, yeah, he's he's doubling down on climate with this, um, which is a good thing. Uh so, so yeah, it's it's not perfect, and we'll see what it ends up looking like. But so far, um, statements have come out from organizations from around the world, and people are pretty happy with the announcement and pretty excited about the potential. Um, but, uh, but Steph, I know you've been you've been looking into it as well. Yeah. So, just to confirm, it is CP two, as in patio, not as in right. baby, not in- uh, like Jordan Peterson. Um, the yeah. So, I mean. What's been interesting a little bit about the coverage of this, and I think it has to do with the climate—not using climate in a in, in not the weather sense or the earth sense, but as in the feeling sense—that I think every time someone does something to sort of delay fossil fuels, right now, there's this big fear from the fossil fuel in- industry and hope from the sort of those of us who would live on a planet industry. to that it will be like the tipping point when we finally accept that we give up on fossil fuels. And and that creates this weird sort of explosion of intense feelings whenever something like this happens. Because it's always like, oh man, is this going to be the final thing that tips that over? And the fact that that is on people's minds, I think is a good sign. Like the fact that the fossil fuel industry is scared enough about a pause on new LNG things, which I should say, there's a good uh, Kate Aronoff piece about this as well that sort of tampers expectations because the U.S., um, for the things that are already approved, we will probably see a increase of U.S. exports by up to 80% still with like things that have already been approved and are already in the quote-unquote pipeline and that the U.S. is already one of the largest gas exporters, and that's obviously not going to change because of these things. And so, like, you get this weird, is this a tipping point question that's also directly flies in the face of some of the realities of still how much more increased of capacity is still coming and will still happen despite this pause. And... On the Canadian side of things, uh, the Energy Mix has a has an article coming out that shows that the Canadian pension plan plan is still investing a hundred million dollars in LNG for uh, you know despite this news or as this news is happening. I mean, it hasn't happened since this news, but it's like part of their investments that already that that have been moving forward in the last little bit. And so, it's not like there isn't money still flowing in. It's not like there isn't still expansion going to be happening. And yet, I do think that the fever pitch that these things are responded to with does imply that everyone, including industry, is sort of waiting for the balloon to pop, right? Like, they also know that their amount of time doing this is limited. And so when there's a pause, there's like, oh, maybe we won't actually get the money later. It just won't come at all. And I think that, to me, is what's interesting about this, is that every time you get these little moments... Everyone sort of freaks out. And I think that's because everyone 
sees a future now where we aren't using LNG, where we aren't using you know oil, where we aren't using fossil fuels. And the question is just how much money can these people suck out of the system before we actually put a stop to it? Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's like it's like the industry had counted their chickens before they hatched. And now we're like, oh, heads up, you're never getting those chickens. And 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 they're freaking out as a result. Um, what also still remains to be seen is sort of like what this will mean for um, LNG export in in so-called Canada, north of north of the medicine line, um, uh, because um, we don't have any export terminals on the east coast, and we have export terminals that are theoretically coming online on the west coast that there is really fierce opposition to. Obviously, that's it's that's it's the main. Um, uh, for anybody that's ever heard about uh, Wet'suwet'en or CGL, that's that's going to be a, a, ga- a gas terminal um, coast for for the coastal gas link pipeline. So anyway, so so there's there's um, there's a concern um, amongst Canadian organizers that um, this could mean that there's an influx of business and an influx of investment from those companies that were going to have their projects down south now looking for alternate routes to get that natural gas to a market theoretically in 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 Asia or in um in Europe um so there's a little bit of concern that we're gonna see an increased amount of pressure up north but um there's also the understanding that like like you said it's like this is a signal that like, it's a dying industry because yes, although Biden is trying to win over younger voters, he it's 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 a calculated risk. You know what I mean? He wouldn't he wouldn't be doing this if they were signing away gazillions of dollars. They're doing this because they can see the writing on the wall for this industry. So so there's a there's a chance that we might not actually see that influx of business coming up north because the companies might just be like, hey, you know what? We're we're bailing on the North American natural gas export industry altogether. Which yeah. that would be a vibe. I'm totally speaking out of my butt right now in terms <laughs> of like industry abandonment. Um, it's just it's a it's a conversation that I'm having with myself and kind of having with having with colleagues and friends um, as yeah. we figure out what the ramifications of this are going to be for um, for us up north. And w- one other thing on that before we move on is in the conversation I had with Andrew Leach back uh, a couple months ago, I sort of put to him this question of like, if does he believe there's a carbon bubble? And his answer was basically that he did not think that it would pop in the way that people expected to but when i sort of put him i sort of pushed him on it in his and he basically pointed to the what he saw was the fact that oil companies now in in the oil sands when they are making the record profits aren't reinvesting those record profits they are they are in fact just basically sort of I mean, they're doing stock buybacks and stuff like that to make their investors more rich, but they aren't. You're seeing a, a less of that money go back into new things, and so his position is that they're sort of. You're already beginning to see these oil companies um, see that right in the wall, and oil, I think, is probably has a shorter lifespan. I would say than LNG, most likely because of the ways that it can be replaced more easily in most things, and LNG has access to it being. This idea, especially in Europe, they have an idea that it's somehow much better for carbon intensity, which, you know, again, it's still a fossil fuel. And if folks remember the other interviews we've done about shipping containers and how how hard people are fighting to make sure that LNG is not used as the bridge fuel, quote unquote, uh, on on big shipping, then you should understand that it's not a real solution. But I do think that it has this sort of faux idea that it is cleaner and therefore you could. It, it, I think it sees itself as lasting longer than oil. I would say, and and yet, if we see something like this, that might 
create the LNG businesses have the exact same response to be like, okay, well, we have to accept that expansion is no longer our game and let's shift now. Again, that is not to say that there are not oil companies expanding many places across the earth and that this fight is anywhere near over, but I do think it's a little bit like that is maybe how this looks in the short term. Yeah, yeah. Something we we haven't talked about enough on this show because it 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 it, it doesn't often come up within the Canadian context and, and, and we should still discuss it regardless, but is is this concept of like the dash to gas and like neocolonialism in in Africa specifically, as you're getting these companies who, yes, are maybe are maybe um ramping down slowly practices in in North America and especially with an announcement like this, they certainly will be. But um all of those companies then going to um countries in the global south to then extract and export and utilize their natural gas resources. So yeah, that that might increasingly be something we have to talk about as yeah, as production ramps down here. Fingers crossed. I don't know. <laughs> it all seems like a, a bit of a pipe dream. So the energy mix reports that the oil sands are releasing 63 times more pollution than the industry is reporting. Um, uh, and it's based on a study that was conducted over the, over over several years. Um, and from what I understand, it's it was kind of this, uh, a, not a big one-off, but it was like kind of like the first time a, a project like this has been conducted because it was so... Um, cost intensive uh to to fly over the tar sands over and over and over again and 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 get all this equipment but basically the pollution they're referring to isn't uh isn't greenhouse gas pollution actually but it's like airborne pollutants um and i believe uh one of the one of the kind of uh, not numbers but one of the examples that was given is that the tar sands um has airborne pollution similar to a city the size of los angeles basically um so what that means is the people that live in and around and work in and around the tar sands are being exposed to um airborne particulate matter that is like extremely harmful to their to their um respiratory systems um and uh, this project was um this study i guess was was extensive enough that that they discovered pollution in areas that like really hadn't been um monitored at all before for airborne pollution for instance one of the examples given was that uh um one of the ways of managing tailings waste uh so everybody's heard about tailings ponds and you have a tailings pond um and <laughs> there was a fight a couple of years ago on the part of the companies operating these tailings ponds to like oh well like what if we just like release the water back into the river and people were like that is not a good idea so then their alternative has been oh, okay well like what if we just like if we let it sit for long enough eventually the water um oh my gosh, evaporates. And what you're left with is just like the physic um, is, is the, the solids of, of the tailings and the toxins. Um, and theoretically, okay, sure. Maybe that's a, maybe that could work. It, it obviously like they, they believed it had worked, but with this study, what they realized is that as that water is evaporating, it's still taking trace amounts of toxins with it, which means that you're still getting again, more airborne pollution. So anyway, um, obviously we, we don't have time to go into it today, but if folks want to hear more, check out the narwhal or listen to a really good episode of CBC's front burner that came out this week, actually, that digs into it a little bit, but, um, but again, yeah, terrible, terrible amounts of airborne pollution, similar to that of a of a major, major northern city. Um, but just not this this one time. We're not we're not talking about greenhouse gas pollutants. Yeah, and I mean, it seems like every time anyone looks at the the oil sands 
just a little bit deeper than or actually you know what not even deeper like if you just look at every time they look at them at all you get this like new study or new thing about how it's actually much worse than we imagined right like th- th- we've done multiple times we've had stories about how oh actually it releases way more methane than we thought and then and now it's like oh actually it has hundreds of thousands of more tons of other emissions of other things that hurt people that we than we thought and it's just like and then you just like see the images of the devastation of the land itself and it isn't because then no longer should be a surprise that this keeps coming out so the oil sands themselves release over 10 percent of all canada's emissions so it's just like the activity that's there well, yeah. well, and the thing is, what they were saying about this is, is again, the reason this study was so was um, kind of such a landmark study. And the reason the findings were so significant was because previously um, they had there there were reported levels of, of airborne toxins and pollutants coming out of the tar sands, but they were self-reported numbers from those companies, um, which, again, is, is no surprise when you find out those numbers are being underreported. Of course they are. That company has a vested interest in underreporting those numbers. The fact that that was ever the case and that it wasn't that those companies were responsible to funnel money back into the government and then the government would then fund independent studies. Anyway, I don't get to rule the world, but that seems like a no-brainer to me. Uh, but um, what they apparently what they found is that if if my memory serves, um, it's not just that like there were maybe double or triple the amount of pollutants that that they had previously suspected. It was like sixty three times the amount of pollutants um, as as they had been previously led to believe. Huge, and and as you noted, like the things we should be learning from this are things that again. At the face of it, I think sometimes the world is counterintuitive and that we need to like learn and do research and understand why things are the way they are. And then other times, if you just hear a thing and it seems weird, the facts should they like like you should just accept that it is in fact completely weird in that and the number one for me is the fact that seemingly the norm across north america that has become that industries self-report their own pollution metrics is like one of the things that is so obviously set up to fail that i can't believe it remains standard in most places it's like you would never have a restaurant run its own health checks. Like there's a reason the health department exists and we're and we all understand that purpose and that's great. But like the oil sands get to run their own health checks for whatever reason because they say it's complicated or because the government doesn't want to deal with it and that leads to the exact things you'd expect to go wrong going wrong. We'll go to a music break and come back with Stefan speaking with Mr. Professor Stephen Sharper about the origins of democracy. And we would take this opportunity to graciously thank every individual donating to our Patreon page. We are a proud member of the Harbinger Media Network, including other great shows like Left Turn Canada, Big Shiny Takes, and North Untapped. Thank you 
so much for listening. We are here with Professor Stephen Sharper, continuing our series on the links between democracy and sustainability. Thanks so much for being here. Thanks, Steph. Great to be here. So for folks who who want to learn more about this, they can go back a couple episodes. One of the last episodes of of 2023, we began this conversation and, and we're continuing it here, although our conversation will in some ways connected thematically, but I don't think that people actually will have to have listened to the previous conversation, especially given that this time we're starting at the real base, I would say. If we're going to build up sort of this case for a link between sustainability and democracy, then one of the early important things to understand sort of where democracy came from, and what was interesting in some of our pre-conversations, was that it's there's a bit of a misconception. I think most people think, you know, democracy, that their tale of democracy is one thing. And obviously through your work and your research, you know, it's more elaborate than that. So can you sort of tell us where democracy came from? Sure. Thank you. And it is good to kind of get to the roots of some of our words and ideas. So when we think of democracy in the West, we think of ancient Athens and you know, fifth century BCE Athens and the development of the first Western democracy. And there, as we know, I mean, I'm certainly no expert on ancient Athenian democracy, but there are a few threads that uh, I hope to highlight here. Of course, it comes from demos, the word for people, and kratos, rule. So this idea that people can rule themselves is something that emerged in ancient Athens for the citizens of Athens. And that was limited to free men, 18 years and older. So women, slaves, children were not part of that demos pool that could participate in direct democracy. And this notion of citizen also emerges from ancient Athens. And you have a responsibility to your city. So the context was citizens in the city having a say and a responsibility and duty to participate in the formation of rules of law. So how the various structures of their life would be led. And one thing that was important here in democracy as it emerged in certainly Athenian democracy was an attempt to not have one interest or one ruler or one controlling power determine the lifeway of the whole city so that there was participation of a variety of people. Again, not the whole populace, but a representative populace given the kind of strictures of the time. So this notion of common good is involved in this ancient form of democracy. But that's one strand of democracy. And as you were intimating earlier too in the introduction, there's a different source of democracy that we have in North America. And this is one that's often hidden and often bulldozed by perhaps a colonialist ethos. And that is our indigenous traditions of democracy. 
So in North America, the Haudenosaunee, known as the Iroquois Confederacy, had forms of democracy that were very important and influential in terms of Western democracy, particularly in North America. So one of the traditions in the Haudenosaunee was the selection of leaders through clan mothers and the kind of meetings and assemblies that would occur among the five and then six nations of the Confederacy. After their great peacemaker helped bring harmony to the Haudenosaunee, and here the work of Bill Woodworth, who's an indigenous architect at Waterloo, as well as Orrin Lyons in upstate New York, and others show that the founding fathers of the United States were very influenced by these threads of democracy. That this notion of a confederacy of nations had an impact on the formation of a confederation of states in the United States. There's also an indigenous storyteller and artist who writes about this from the perspective of women, and that's Naomi Renville. And she talks about the role of clan mothers. So whereas in ancient Greece, women were not a direct part of the democratic process. In North America, in the Haudenosaunee Confederacy, women had a powerful role in the selection of leaders. The leaders were male, generally, but the clan mothers were absolutely essential in identifying and, in a sense, giving their blessing to male leaders. And writers have noted how many in the American colonies were surprised at this, at the empowerment of women in these democratic structures of the Haudenosaunee and other indigenous traditions. The Muscogee Nation of Oklahoma, for example, also had powerful democratic traditions that were influential in North American democracy. Some even claim that the Supreme Court and the notion of the Supreme Court was deeply influenced by these strands in indigenous democratic traditions of having certain leaders and elders who were quite wise make rules and laws for the community. So it's interesting now, Steph, as in light of our ecological emergency and climate chaos, we turn to indigenous cultures often for wisdom that had been oppressed, silenced, buried, colonized, to help us find a way out of our ecological morass. But we're also realizing that there are democratic wisdom traditions there that have also been overlooked or sidelined or marginalized. And so this is an act of liberation, this historical retrieval. And as you know, I've looked at Latin American liberation theology and liberation traditions from Latin America. And Gustavo Gutierrez, a Peruvian priest and social activist who developed many of these antecedents of liberation theology, talked about the threefold notion of liberation. And one is liberation from socio-political, economic, cultural, racial oppression. The second notion, though, is historical liberation. And that is unearthing the suppressed, beaten, colonized, marginalized stories 
and persons who helped shape history, the unnamed agents of history. And the third, of course, is liberation from what he would call sin, quote unquote. And he defines that as what, whether, whatever ruptures our relationship between ourselves and our divine or the higher power or in his the creator. But that second notion, this historical liberation is important when we look at democracy and sustainability, because the indigenous roots of democracy are often overlooked or ignored. And they're very compelling and powerful and continuing traditions that we, I think, are invited to be in fruitful dialogue with and respectful dialogue with. Yeah, it's interesting you bring up that piece about trying to bring back a history or to explain how certain parts of people's culture and certain cultures have been sort of suppressed by our own cultural storytelling about how much influence was had, partially because, I mean, the way that these our colonial nations here in you know, Canada and the States have talked a lot about themselves, you know, especially if you look at the States uh, in, in early 2000s, about bringing democracy places, which, which is such a fascinating, or like it's important to note that like in doing that, in, in their whole process that they are considering, oh, we figured out democracy over the last 200 years, so we need to export it now. Yet the colonial practice that they participated in, in many ways, stamped out a local democracy. Like there were democracies across North America before the the American Revolution. And the idea that the American Revolution, because it was pushing back against the monarchy, gets to have this sort of raw, raw story that they are, in fact, you know, the, the righteous ones. But you that the moment you understand that the indigenous populations that they were eventually colonizing and then in many ways forcing out of their lands, killing hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people. And, and all of that was the extermination of a local democracy that was absorbed a little bit into this, as you can say, but there were, you can't, it really flips that sort of idea on its head that this was a, a democratizing of the land when you understand exactly the, what the other nations were doing that were in their within the you know, so-called United States. Absolutely. And that's well put. I'm thinking of a book and a conversation by and with Peter Russell. He is a professor emeritus from the University of Toronto and one of the leading constitutional scholars and democratic scholars, scholars of democracy here in Canada. And he tells a story about, I think it was in the 1970s, he gets a call from the chief of the Dene in the Northwest Territories. And they want him to come out to answer a question. They wanted to do this in person. So getting to some of those areas in the 1970s wasn't as easy as it is now. This was quite a journey. And they bring Peter into a room and he's with members of the Dene community. And they say, how did Canada get sovereignty? over our lands. And he said, I don't know, but I will talk to the people who should know and get back to you. Well, of course, he checked with all the legal doyens and the deans of sovereignty in the country. And the answer was, it was stolen. They had no legitimate right to sovereignty. So to your point, 
oh, we're going to bring democracy to the world. Oh, we're going to bring the light of our Western enlightened citizen-based form of government to darkened authoritarian and backward rule and regions. It's often a sham. And this notion of sovereignty that somehow the crown or the government of Canada has sovereignty over indigenous peoples or their lands was really a sham. It was a theft. And so their notions of sovereignty were sublimated. Their notions of democracy and consensus rule, their empowerment of women was also steamrolled in this larger narrative. And that's why that historical notion of liberation is so important, not only for the truth and reconciliation process, but also for our liberation from environmental destruction, from oppressive forms of government, from racism, and from the ever tempting hit of colonization intellectually and economically and politically. Yeah. What, what I find so interesting about this also is how understanding that democracy existed in worlds that are not our current one, you know, like there's such right now a overwhelming connection between sort of democracy and the way that our current world works in terms of like a free market sort of system that it feels and can feel like they're intertwined, that these things have to happen at the same time. Like you can't have a democracy without having sort of free market system. And yet, you know, as you've explained and shown, that's not the case when we look back in time. We see these other examples of a democracy that has found other ways to exist while preserving its democratic sort of cent pieces of it. And so, yeah, I'm, I wonder if you just like talk a little bit about how we can sort of use some of this learning, I think, to imagine a new world, because I, I don't think we're going to necessarily get to where we need to go with the system we have now. You know, nothing about the last 20, 30 years since we've discovered climate change, since we all globally agreed climate change was a thing, have shown that our current systems are not really built to tackle this head on in the way that we would really hope they would. And so a future that does, does feel like we need to find some other shifts. And so I'd be curious how you sort of see that, that tension and how we can imagine future worlds that aren't so reliant on a free economy, yet still ensure that there's the freedom in, with a de democratic process. Yeah, great question, Steph. And as you suggest, this is not just a policy issue. It's not just an economic issue. It's not just a, you know, a kind of strategic issue. It's a deep cultural reimagining that involves our whole selves, our spiritual, artistic, creative, dynamic, philosophical selves. That this is, as Thomas Berry, someone we've talked about earlier, a geologian, not a theologian, who was important in Al Gore's formation as an environmentalist, a moment to reimagine what it means to be human. And so what sustainability invites us to is not simply the role of the demos, the human or the citizen, but our role within the larger planet and cosmos in a sense that we are invited now to think in an expansive manner, 
So we talked last time about Aldo Leopold. Many consider him one of the pioneers of environmental ethics. But his idea was to expand the ancient Greek notions of ethics, of interpersonal relations and the human to society, to the human to the more than human world, to the biotic community. And this is where sustainability and its accent on future generations, its accent on the intrinsic value of the more than human world as it relates to socioeconomic and political concerns is potentially very transformative and will change the way we do economics. It will change the way we do politics. It changes the way we should do education, etc. You know well the essay by David Orr, who had been at Oberlin College and a leading sustainability thinker. He did an essay, What is Education For? And at the beginning of that essay, he talks about how many species are forced into extinction each day, between 40 and 200. How many hectares of tropical rainforest are being burned each day? How many tons of greenhouse gases each day are put into the atmosphere? And he says, this isn't the work of ignorant people. This is the work of highly educated people with BAs, BSCs, MAs, PhDs, law degrees, etc. The problem isn't a lack of education. It's a lack of requisite values and what we do with our education. So this moment that sees extractive capitalism in an aggressive ascendancy in many parts of the world, including Canada, not only here, but our mining companies internationally. This is a kind of, as Thomas Berry would say, a perhaps last gasp while the resources are still there. And he warned that as a different ethos would emerge, you're going to see incredible rapaciousness among these corporate powers to gobble up what they can while the, get, while the gobbling is good. In other words, they know the tide is turning and they are doing their best to extract as much resource and profit from their business as possible. This is what has to be thwarted. This is what has to be resisted. And it's not only a question of contestation, but also of compassion and reimagination. And so we're kind of called to a new moment where we need all hands, minds, and hearts on deck to reimagine a new way of being human that will translate into a new economy, a new political system, a new educational system, a new way of centering around the earth as primary and ourselves as secondary, again, to echo Thomas Berry. Yeah. And I feel like we're given a road to do that through this concept of a common good, right? Because this idea that there is a common good, A, sort of flies in the face of this sort of story we're told about the tragedy of the commons, which has its own flaws in the ways that it existed has managed to like permeate our sense of brain space, despite it not really being true. But we can leave that one to the side. Because if we're looking forward, 
the the fact that both within ecological circles and within democratic circles and honestly within community care circles, some of the things that we've seen, say, developed during COVID and stuff like that, and, and, and even honestly how we think about things like public transit, all of these things come down to this idea that there is a common good and that if we all work for a common good, we can all live better. And that doesn't sound radical, but like in our current society is radical. Right. Like th that would if we really did reorganize our society to try to man make a world for the common good, we would be living in a vastly different society. And so can you talk about sort of that, that the beginnings of thinking around the common good and, and how you think about that? Yeah, the common good is essential here to a sense of democracy, both in ancient Greek forms, I sense in indigenous forms of democracy, as well as our current expressions of democracy. And times of crisis accent the common good. So you had the Great Depression in North America, beginning in 1929 with a stock market crash. Well, at that point, all of a sudden, you had new ideas emerging, particularly in the United States when Franklin Delano Roosevelt was elected, that had been germinating in many interesting communities, both in Canada and the United States. So the Canadian Commonwealth Federation, which is the forerunner to the NDP, which had a lot of Christian reflection, and Tommy Douglas, of course, came from a Christian background. Well, they had been working on ideas that later became implemented in Canada and parts of which became implemented in the United States, such as Social Security, such as Medicare that their expressions of the common good coming from their religious Christian worldview in a time of desperation were picked up by politicians who realized we're in desperate times. We have to do something different. And so they adopted aspects of the common good that had been reflected on in different spaces. This reminds me of Paul Hawkins' Blessed Unrest, of all these sparkling, scintillating, non-governmental organizations, activist groups who are doing amazing work below the radar screen of public consciousness. And then at a certain moment, they burst forward. A second moment, as you point out, is COVID. So here in Toronto, during COVID, things happened that folks thought would never happen, but had been advocating for, such as taking over hotels to provide housing for homeless. Oh, that could never be done before COVID. I mean, that's ridiculous. COVID hits. It was done. And as I think I mentioned to you one time in private conversation, I have a friend whose mother was a staunch conservative, always voted for the conservatives. But when COVID hit and she saw the federal government actually doing something to help people, she said, I've been sold a bill of goods. My conservative buds had always said government can't do anything or shouldn't have any intervention in the economy. I realized I was being lied to. That was government at a certain moment intervening for the common good and providing funding for people who were in trouble, providing housing for homeless. That's when you see a shift toward the common good, often in these times of crisis, health problems, catastrophes, economic downturns. And this is part of the struggle now, as we have a rise of billionaires, as we have an 
incredible economy gap. And there was just another report I reported on the Toronto Star of a growing income gap again in Canada between the has and the have-nots. And the distance between the highest paid CEOs and line workers that has continued to yawn and enlarge itself to a point where you have the rich and the rest of us. It was said that trickle-down economics of the neoliberal variety was there to raise all boats. But pundits have said they simply raised all yachts. In a sense, it made the rich get super rich. And this is completely deleterious for the common good. So reasserting government as a purveyor of the common good is essential. And that's why these threats to democracy that we're seeing around the world, and particularly in the United States, with the Senate Donald Trump in the Republican Party again, despite nine impeachment efforts, despite actually being charged and judged as being a sex offender with E. Jean Carroll. His authoritarianism is a threat to all of these ideas of the common good, of representative democracy, and of sustainability that we've been talking about. As you know, he has quipped that he wants to be dictator for a day if reelected. And when given softball questions by his friends on friendly media, he continues to assert it. And he said, I want to be dictator for a day for two reasons. One, I want to build a wall and I want to drill, drill, drill. Both are anathema to human integrity and ecological integrity. So on a social level, they're devastating because of all the people who are dying on that U.S.-Mexico border and all the people who are suffering. The razor wire just being removed from the Texas border, but the horrendous suffering on that front, but also the suffering of wildlife with that wall. The whole patterns of migration of major species is being destroyed. And also it's changing the flow of rivers in the area. So the riparian chaos is wreaking havoc on all sorts of ecosystems. But Donald Trump removed Environmental Protection Agency protections of that area so that he could build his wall and extend it deeper into the desert. So again, the common good, which had come up with environmental protection as it extends to the bio community, has been thwarted in the name of authoritarian approach. And then secondly, drill, drill, drill. Well, we know how devastating that is. We don't have to look any further than the wildfires that we saw in the summer and the crazy whipsawing weather patterns that we're seeing now. Last year was the hottest year on record. And we keep busting that record, as you know, Steph. Each year, each two years, we're creating new records in terms of climate change and climate chaos. And that's devastating economically, politically, personally, ecologically. It's a nightmare. And it also supports the extractive economy that is anathema to the common good. So this drift toward authoritarianism is the wrong way to go. I mean, it's actually the opposite of what we have to engender here. Well, yeah. And especially because, as you said, all of these different things are getting entangled in that the more that we are allow for corporations to become increasingly powerful, you know, they can exert their will more strongly that 
undermines the strength and ability of people to push for the common good, which then creates a system that is more enticing for more authoritarianism, because the more that you can support these things, the, the more you'll get support and the easier. And it, so it does become a vicious cycle that keeps us locked into things that are increasingly not even the cheapest way to do stuff. Like to me, that's sort of the, the the piece of this that I'm left with most often is that when I started, you know, doing this work and, you know, when like 20, 30 years ago, the main critique all the time of climate work was that it was so expensive that to do this work was going to harm the the most, you know, vulnerable people. And then that's not allowed. And so you can't be done. But I would say now we're in a space which very obviously that is no longer the case, that you have wind and solar that are cheaper than any other type of, of fuel. You have options, you know, like e-bikes and electric vehicles and public transit, which can be shown to be drastically cheaper for, for people's experiences. Like, and, and then even for, from a happiness perspective, you know, you get these studies that show like if in the States, uh, if you're driving two hours for your day, your, your commute every day, the difference between switching that to a 10 minute walk is like, it's, it's the same level of happiness jump as falling in love. Like mm. it's totally transformative to break ourselves out of these very carbon heavy systems that are really, I think, staying entrenched because of this sort of entrenched power and not actually this point because they are serving really any of us. And so as a way of, a, of sort of a last question here for I wonder if you can sort of talk about how we can begin to move towards this greater democracy that also provides for everyone, right? Like it's, we exist right now in a, what I would say is it feels like a very brittle world that both from a standpoint, if you hit it, it sort of falls down and you have to, in the own, like you, we saw it in often with the, with the ways that like cold snaps are really messing up the Texas or Alberta energy grid, but also from a way of like, they're stuck. They're very stuck in their old ways because we've sort of built them in the ways that like, it's very hard to turn a 14 lane highway into public transit, or we've already built things where they are. And so it's hard to move to, to really manage this. And yet those kinds of changes are the changes that will really unlock a world that is both better for the planet, better for individuals, but also sort of better for our spiritual selves or just our emotional core of like being in the world and not being, you know, uh, a commuter, for example. Yes. And I loved your expression of falling in love, you know, and doing that comparison. I've written in other contexts and some of my uh, published books, uh, this notion of the need to fall in love with the earth in a sense, falling in the love with a new reality and a new relationality. And this came about in part, this insight. When about 18 years ago, my wife and I decided to get rid of our car because we were living in downtown Toronto, had access to public transit. We didn't need the car anymore. And I was invited on CFRB radio to talk about this. And my friend who had been on, who was kind of from the left of the political spectrum said, wear your body armor, Steve, because this is the closest thing we have to hate radio. And it's a call-in show. And I went in there and they said, this will be about a five or 10 minute show. Well, an hour and a half later, I would say 65 to 70% of the callers were in agreement and they were talking about what you were saying. 
I'm stuck in traffic horrendously. We have the worst traffic snarls in North America, worse than Los Angeles and New York in terms of time spent in traffic. And they said, I wish there were transit options. You know, I said, I'm privileged here. And this is not a holier than thou thing. If I were living in Ajax, I'd probably have a car, but I have the luxury of mass transit. And they said, yes, we don't have an option. That option has been taken away from us. We would love to have that option. So it wasn't like this, some mysterious love of the automobile that got people into their cars stuck on the QEW area. They were saying there are no alternatives. And so part of this is also getting away from the dichotomous polarization of our political discourse. And of course that serves certain interests. And this isn't simply indoctrination. It's hate training. This is hate training. And I saw this firsthand Steph, when I was in the hospital for eight days with a blood infection, something I would not recommend getting. And the fellow next to me, I mean, he, he wasn't just rude. He was fabulously rude. He could give a seminar on how to be obnoxious. Like you could see nurses like, you know, creeping against the wall in fear. I mean, just remarkably vitriolic. And then I saw what he was watching for seven hours a day. I'm not exaggerating because he wouldn't put in an earphone. And he was watching something from Michigan, and I think it might have been from Michigan militias. And it was basically how to confront authorities, government authorities, police authorities, and create a disturbance through hate and insults. So this was hate training for seven hours a day. And I saw the fruits of it, the way he dealt with doctors and nurses. And so what we have to do is move away from that energy. And we have to find ways, as Martin Luther King says, that, you know, hate cannot extirpate hate. Only love can do that. And so finding ways of softening, listening, being firm, knowing when certain people are going to be changing this way, you have to be very firm, but also being able to not imbibe a hate training perspective in response to these realities and keeping our own spirits nourished through the arts, through exposure to nature, through community building, through play, through these dynamisms. This is not ancillary. This is really important. And sometimes we think, oh, the focus is just work till we drop for the cause. Well, that's unsustainable. It's unsustainable personally, and it's unsustainable politically. We have to have joy. We have to have frolicsomeness in our activism, in our resistance, because this is where the positive energy can be attractive and not simply an add-on that we think about as an afterthought when we're so tired, we can barely function. How to integrate that and reflect that is a challenge, but it's also doable. It's also a daily life way. And fostering processes, fostering educational moments, fostering political moments that support that, I think is absolutely critical to finding a new way of being in light of these challenges. Amazing. Well, thank you so much. I'm sure we'll, we'll have you back on to talk about this issue once again. So if anyone actually has any questions about this topic, for Professor Stephen Jarbert, you can send them to us at the show through our Contact Us page or 
tweet at us at Read Majority. But this has been Stephen Sharper, a professor at the University of Toronto, talking about democracy and sustainability. Thanks so much for being here and have a wonderful day. Thanks so much, Stefan. Great to be with you. Bye-bye now. It's not easy being free. It's not easy.